Working on uh, Proverbs 28. Um, this whole section of Proverbs perhaps starts in Proverbs 25. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. And to some extent, quite a few of the Proverbs in 25, 26, 27 are like comparison Proverbs. But in 28 and 29, we are dealing more with opposite Proverbs. They call them antithetical, but they're opposite Proverbs, just like we had a lot of back in chapters 10 to 14. Uh, and a lot of these early Proverbs here in chapter 28 are unlike rulers and kings and things like that. Uh, so we'll just take a few of these and uh, look at them. Would somebody read the first five verses? The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. By the transgression of a land, many are, are its princes, but by a man of understanding and knowledge, so it endures. A poor man who oppresses the lowly is like a driving rain which leaves no food. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive with them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. I like verse 1, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. Now, you'd expect somebody to flee if they were being chased. Why would the wicked flee when nobody was after them? Gary? When you're doing something wrong, you always have the suspicion that somebody's going to know it. And yes. So how does a guilty conscience make you feel? Uh, guilty? Yeah, guilty. <laughs> Tense. Kind of paranoid. You know, you become suspicious. You think everybody's about to find it out. You know, and so it just makes you uh, more stressed, really. You know, every sound of the night, every time somebody looks at you, you know, you're like, do they know? Do they know? You know, isn't that true? I mean, when you're doing wrong, it's just a lot more stressful because everything just makes you think, oh no, you know, they, they know or they're going to find out. Uh, and so it's a lot harder. Uh, the righteous people, they're as bold as a lion. They don't have to keep looking over their shoulder because they know they've done nothing wrong. You know, you think about, um, I don't know, some of you are public schooled, you know, what do you think when you get called to the principal's office? <laughs> I didn't do it. Yeah. But some people, when they were called to the principal, the principal's office, would think what? How did they find out? Okay, well, I'm thinking, you know, what am I being awarded for this time? <laughs> you know, or something like that. It, it depends. It depends on what kind of a kid you are. Some kids, when they'd be called to the principal's office, they'd look forward to it. You know, because it would be some responsibility they're being given, or some award they're receiving, or something like that. You know, other people, oh, what did they find out about this time? <laughs> you know, it all depends on what you've done, what your life is like, what your character's like. You know, it, it, it puts everything into different light. You know, what if a strong Christian that you really look up to says, I need to talk to you? Do you immediately think, oh no, what are they going to talk to me about? Or do you think, oh great, I love talking to them. You know, mostly it's going to depend on your conscience. So I think that's a very true proverb. 
I don't like that. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, you see it corresponds to reality so well. Do you have a thought or comment on that one? Good reason not to be guilty. Is that repeated somewhere else in Proverbs? I don't know, is it? I don't remember it somewhere else like that, but I'm not sure. So, I don't have, at least in my uh, marginal reference, I don't have any other Proverbs right. listed. So I don't think it is. In verse 2, what you find out is you have a lot of princes when a land is wicked but a, by a man of understanding and knowledge so it endures so what he's saying is if you have a frequent turnover in like kings and leaders and all that that's a bad sign <laughs> you know because you more have that when people are wicked and everybody's trying to bring the other government down, maybe even assassinations and things like that. Stability, really, is a sign of good government. You would like a stable, you know, leadership in a country. Um, and you see that illustrated in Israel. Remember those last few years of the history of, of the Northern Kingdom? How many rulers did they have like in the last 30 years? Quite a few, right? And you know why? Why did Israel have so many kings in the last few Transgression. years? Transgression. They kept dying. Why did they die? They got killed. They got killed, yeah. You know, one guy bump another guy off so he could be king. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, overthrows of the government. So, that's true. Stability is a sign of people of understanding and knowledge. I like verse 3. It's so true. A poor man who oppresses the lowly is like a driving rain which leaves no food. Um, you know, think about a guy who's poor who gets a little bit of power and turns around and oppresses other people. What do you think about that? stupid like he was poor himself he should be understanding exactly he knows what it's like he's been there and suffered through that but then he gets power and he turns out to be an oppressor himself it's almost worse it's more frustrating but it's often true you take the guy who gets picked on all the time if suddenly he's seen as cool he starts picking on people it's like, that's not right. You take siblings in a family. If you have a lot of siblings. You know, who usually does the picking on most in a line of siblings? The oldest. You know that, don't you? <laughs> and so the oldest one picks on the next one. And the next one knows what it feels like. He knows it's really hard. And what, is it they, what do they turn out, go around and do? Pick up the next one. Like, wait a minute. If you know how bad it hurt you, why would you turn around and give it to the next one down? But you see that happening a lot of times. It just shouldn't be that way. If we've suffered something, we ought to, by all means, not inflict it on somebody else. Comments or thoughts about that? Reminds me of the example in Matthew 18 and how that kind of applies to us with God and how um, 
how in that example the servant had been forgiven of much and so then he went and not he didn't forgive another servant and we sometimes are not forgiving of others when God has forgiven so much of us Yes, it's a great story in Matthew 18 and really does show what our attitude ought to be toward others. We ought to give others the blessings of kindness and mercy that God has given us. It's just ridiculous to receive it and then not turn around and give it on. A very good point. Well, look at verse 4. This is interesting. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked. But those who keep the law strive with them. You know, whether or not you obey the law or not will determine how you look at lawbreakers. If you are a wicked, rebellious person, how do you see people who break the law? Praiseworthy? Yeah. You think there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's kind of like partners in crime. You know, you almost like it when other people do wrong too. That way you don't feel guilty. So wicked people like lawbreakers. You know, but righteous people don't want others to be disobedient. Um, so think about what happens like in a society where everybody's wicked. Then what happens? There's no law. And what happens when there's no real law? Chaos. Chaos. Absolutely. It's horrible. Because there's no standard. You know, everybody is corrupt. Everybody's wicked. So nobody holds anybody else to a standard. And so anything goes. It's not where you want to live. And it's really right now more true in this country, I think, than what it's been in the past. As people are getting farther and farther away from the standard of what's right, then they begin to just justify everybody and say anything's okay. That, that's really dangerous for any society or culture to have. And, uh, you know, he says that evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. Understanding what's right depends on your behavior. You know, if you always do wrong, it affects your ability to even understand and think straight about right and wrong. You wouldn't think that. You'd think, well, I can still understand what's right and wrong no matter what I do. But doing wrong starts clouding your thinking and making you actually not even reason correctly. You think about this. Why do people go off into false doctrine? And start teaching things that are not biblical. Well, we would probably say, well, because they just don't understand it. In fact, I think some people would say, well, they're probably just not very smart. They just didn't figure it out very well. No. They're gullible. They're gullible, yeah. But more, they're guilty, mostly. Who doesn't like the light and who doesn't come to the light? Yeah, those whose deeds are evil in John chapter 3 verses 19 to 21. There's nothing that messes up and distorts your understanding of truth like doing wrong. It, and so a lot of times if you take somebody 
who like goes off into some false teaching. If you just look at their life, their doing wrong came first, and then it starts messing with how they see things. And I, that's really what he's saying in this passage, that evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. You know, <coughs> obedience leads you to understanding. So always do what you know if you want to have clear understanding of right and wrong. Comments and thoughts about that. Like, like um, when you always do wrong, it like breaks your conscience. Like you don't feel bad about it anymore. Isn't that true? Have you ever had something that you felt guilty about but you kept doing it? Over a period of time, how did you start feeling? Not so guilty. Not so guilty. I mean, probably most of us have had that experience about something. You know, if you just keep doing it and keep, you know, just damaging your conscience eventually, it doesn't bother you so much. And then you may even get to where you, you just argue that it's okay. <laughs> it doesn't bother you at all. You know, that's really dangerous, isn't it? You know, because when doing wrong gets to where it's warped your thinking, then what do you have to bring you back? You know, guilty consciences are a great blessing because <laughs> that's one of God's ways of helping you change. But if you get to the point where you've warped your conscience so much that you no longer even understand the right thing, then how are you ever going to turn back? That, that's, that's the really dangerous thing is that doing wrong ends up going back against what we know and warping what we know and what we understand. Some really great lessons and principles in that. You wouldn't think Proverbs would have such deep thoughts, maybe, about life and behavior and how things work. And, but that's really, you know, we would say a bad understanding leads you to bad behavior. Proverbs would say bad behavior will lead you to a bad understanding. Do you see how that's working? It makes you really think about that. What, so what should we always do? What's the priority? Seeking first the Lord. Yes. And doing what you know is right. Always do what you know is right. Every time you don't, it's getting you one step closer not even thinking properly. <coughs> Other thoughts on that to verse 5? Okay. Um, somebody want to read 6 to 12? Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. He who keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of blessings disgraces his father. He who increases his wealth by exorbitant interest amasses it for another, who will be kind to the poor. If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. He who leads the upright along an evil path will fall into his own trap, but the blameless will receive a good inheritance. A rich man will, may be wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has discernment sees through him. 
When the righteous triumph, there is great elation. But when the wicked rest of power, then go into hiding. It's better to be poor and have integrity than uh, to be crooked and rich. Or in other words, it's better to have honest poverty than dishonest wealth. You know, that's for sure true. I mean, you know, there are hidden costs in some things we choose. And when you do wrong, even though you're rich, it's going to hurt you overall and in the long run. Uh, so, always choose to do right regardless of the consequences. In verse 7, look at the last part of verse 7. You know, he says, he who keeps the law is a discerning son, but he who is a companion of gluttons humiliates his father. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? In the first place, what's wrong with being a companion to a glutton? Maybe we ought to stop and ask the question, what's wrong with gluttony? Selfish. Yeah, it's selfish, self-indulgent, undisciplined. You know, it's not that food is evil. It's that just always doing what I feel and just giving in to my desires is a bad thing. It means I'm it's a kind of a, uh, a demonstration that I'm an undisciplined person. So what's bad about being a companion with a glut? If it's yeah, it puts you on the path to becoming one. Yeah, but why would you pick up their habits? Why would you? Why would that make any difference if you're a companion of a glut? How does that make you a glut? Well, you have to fit in. Yeah, isn't it true? I mean, have you ever noticed people who really get clo to be close friends and do a lot together? Do you ever see how much they start acting alike, even sometimes looking alike? Or have you seen this? Don't you think this is often true? People who've been married a long time to each other actually start looking alike. Have you noticed that? How many of you noticed that? Yeah, they do. Start looking for it. It's crazy. It's like, wow. Well, it's because we rub off on each other, maybe even almost physically. Um, but certainly we do in behavior. You know, there's a lot of power in the company we keep. And so if we start keeping company and just being close friends with undisciplined people, well, it'll eventually humiliate our father because we'll become undisciplined. We'll start acting like they are. You can't make your best friends people who are really bad people because they will rub off even if we say they won't. And we see that all over the Bible and you see it in your real life. So if your best friends are the worst people, let me ask you this. Why do we do that? How many of you are public school? Yeah, not a lot right now, uh, but several. But even in the neighborhood or in school, what do you think the motivation is for relatively good kids to hang out mostly with bad kids? You want to be popular. You want to be popular. Maybe influence them for good. That might be something you'd say. It's probably not the reason most of us do that. Why else would you mostly hang out with bad kids or not that good at kids? 
you know, they do things that you want to do? I, they're cool. They do things you want to do. I'm fishing for another answer nobody's given. All those are true. Some people pick on the people that always do good. That's true. I mean, it's definitely true, isn't it? That you, you seem cooler if you run around with the kind of wilder crowd that are more undisciplined. Isn't that true? Yeah. I'm thinking about you this. You look better. You look better? What about the pair? Yeah. What about this? Are there ever times that somebody feels like they're just not good enough to fit in with the better people? And so they run with the less good people because they don't feel like they can be up to where the others are. I think that makes a difference as well. But what we've got to do is be careful about the people we're the closest with. Obviously, Jesus spent time with the tax collectors and sinners. It's not like we're unwilling to be around them and try to influence them. But when they become our closest friends that we do everything with, then it's very hard for that influence not to affect us. Thoughts and comments on that? In verse 8, what's he telling us not to do? Don't gain wealth deceitfully. Not only deceitfully, <laughs> but don't gain wealth how? Taking advantage of people. Yes. Don't take advantage of people to gain wealth. People do that sometimes, right? Who do they usually take advantage of? People that are they're jealous of, yes. Maybe even more so. People who are easy to take advantage of. People who are easy to take advantage of, which would be the poor, maybe the less uh, understanding about things. A poor person may not have enough clout to be able to do anything about it when you take advantage of them. And, and think about some ways that rich people tend to try to take advantage of poor people. Well, the Pharisees would devour the widow's houses. So they would do it like by encouraging large donations from people who couldn't afford it. I'm thinking about in our culture some ways that that happens. Um, scams. Yes, there are lots of scams. It's usually those that are desperate or need, you know, really in a bad situation already, so they're willing to take more of a risk. And then there's people there preying on that. Yeah, here, take a little risk and we'll bail you out of this bad situation. Yes. You know, I mean, there's people who go around, say, to to older, maybe older widows or something, and they're off, they will offer to put a roof on the house, say, or something like that, and get the money up front and then leave town, things like that. So there's scams that are just totally dishonest, trickery. What about this one? What about, um, you know, so the, these, uh, these places that offer free money, easy cash, you know, cash advance on your check, you know, things like that. You know how that's, have you ever seen those places? Do you know about those places? You know, there are a lot of places that, uh, if you need money right now, and you've got a job, and then things like that, well, they give you money. And then when your check comes, you know, maybe you're going to get a check for, you know, $300 from your job. They give you $250 this week, and then they get the $300 next week. What do you think about that? 
doesn't take long before they got a lot of money on the backs of the people who couldn't afford it. That's kind of what he's talking about here. They would charge excessive interest rates and really take advantage of people who were in need and kind of use their lack of good judgment to get rich. So the Bible's very warns us a lot about not exploiting other people, not taking advantage of them. But now here's what he says, that the one who increases his wealth in this way gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. What's he saying by that? Yes, and that's where it's going to end up. The guy who oppresses others to get money, eventually it ends up in the lap of the person who's generous. How does that work? Well, maybe. God's the one in charge. If you get money dishonestly, God will see that eventually that money goes to the person who's doing good things with it. By various means, God can see to it that you don't benefit by that and that the one who's generous does. We always forget the God factor in those things. You know, we just look at it as a financial deal. But God's in charge and he'll see to it that the righteous ultimately prosper and the wicked are brought down. So don't ever forget that. It's not all a matter of accounting when it comes to these kind of things. Comments? Right, look at verse uh, 9. Do you think verse 9 is right? Well, it is in the Bible. So. <laughs> okay, that's true. What's the? How, show me how it's right for God to consider the prayer of somebody as an abomination. Shouldn't God always like a prayer, Dad? Think about Isaiah 1 when uh, people were uh, lifting up their sacrifices to God. And God says, I hate it. It's an abomination to me because when you're lifting up your hands, they're full of blood. So basically their, their hypocrisy was hindering their praise and their worship to the Lord. Yes. Do you see what he's saying there? He's basically saying if you won't listen to God, God won't listen to you. Isn't that what he's saying? He who turns away his ear from listening to law, law, even his prayers and abomination. You don't listen to God, God doesn't listen to you. And that would be how it is with our earthly parents. If we don't listen to the instructions that they have and the advice that they offer us, then we go to them asking for things and, and, and wanting to do favors for us they'd be much less likely to do that for us. And that, that is true. And that makes sense, doesn't it? What it? Why should we think God would do things for us if we're not willing to listen to Him? So you ought to remember that. One of the reasons to do what's right is so that you can pray and God will listen to you. You don't want to get in a position where God won't even hear you when you pray, do you? That'd be really bad. Well, then you'd better be listening to God and doing what he says. It's a good lesson for us. Comments? Look at verse 10. What happens to the guy who leads other people astray? Yeah. 
You can see why people lead others astray. They like company in their wickedness. Nobody likes to do wrong by themselves. So, there are people who are always trying to corrupt other people and get them to do wrong with them, but they ended up, end up falling into their own trap. It's a very dangerous thing, you know, to do that. You reap what you sow. You get back what you, what you give out. And then in verse 11, you know, the rich man is wise in his own eyes. You know, he thinks of himself as being really smart. Because we usually think that rich, successful people, they're really capable, they're really wise and good and all that. And so if you are successful, oftentimes it'll go to your head. That's not a good thing. Uh, even the poor man sees through him. Do you think that all rich people are really smart and really do smart stuff? No. A lot of them just have people working for them. Yes. And they, they become prideful and start making a lot of mistakes and come down a lot of times. Um, and then, look at verse 12. It's so good for a whole group when the righteous people triumph. When the wicked people rise, everybody tries to, you know, hide themselves. It's much better for the country when there's righteous rulers. It's much better for a church when there's righteous elders and leaders in the church. It's much better for a family when there's a righteous husband and father. You get wicked people having the upper hand in any group. Look out. It's going to be bad news for the whole group. And we can definitely see that. It's a good lesson to learn. If you're the kind of person who likes to vote, don't just think about, well, I want to vote for the guy who's going to favor me. Vote for the guy who has character. Vote for the guy who's more a righteous person. Just don't vote for a wicked guy just because you think he's going to institute some practices that are going to be in your favor. That's not very smart in the long run. All right, comments or questions on any of those verses? All right, um, let's see here. How about uh, 13 to 18? He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always. But he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is the wicked ruler over a poor people. A leader who is, great, who is a great oppressor lacks understanding. But he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. A man who is laden with the guilt of, the, of human blood will be a fugitive until death. Let no one support him. He who walks blamelessly will be delivered, but he who is crooked will fall all at once. All right, I want you to look at verse 13. We'll take a minute on this. He talks about the contrast between somebody who conceals his transgressions and somebody who confesses and forsakes them. Concealing them means to hide them. I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hands, but I would like for you to think about this question. Are there, are there some pretty significant sins in your life that you have never told anybody? I might even ask you this. 
Are there sins that are really dominant in your life? Like you do them a lot and you think about them a lot, but nobody else knows about them. It's really bad when we hide our sins. Now, when we talk about confessing them, who should we confess our sins to? First of all, to God. How do you, what does it mean to confess your sins to God? How would you do that? I know that sounds like an obvious question, but I don't know that it, we, in practice it's all that obvious. What, what would it mean to confess your sins to God? To humbly go before him, acknowledge that you have done wrong and you have sinned and offended him. Yes. Oh, I, let's take an example. What's a sin that you commit sometimes? Anybody ever committed a sin in here? Any of you ever lied? Have you lied? Oh yeah. So what would it look like if you confessed lying to God? You can tell God that you have lied. Confession means to say the same thing that God says about something. Alright. So you'd say, you know, God, I lied about this. You know, I said this, but it wasn't true. And you would be upset about that. You humbly confess that. Is that different from saying this? What if you say, well, God, you know, I'm a human being, and I sin a lot. Is that really confessing your sins? What if you say, God, forgive me of my many sins? Is that really the same thing as confessing your sins? Asking for forgiveness and confessing are two different things, aren't they? Just because you ask for forgiveness... Or you just kind of vaguely say, God, I sin a lot, forgive me. That's not the same as actually talking to God and telling him what you did, specifically. So, when we confess to God, it means being specific. Who else should I confess to besides to God? One another. When do I especially need to confess to somebody else? If you sinned against them. Yeah, Absolutely. Do you ever sin against somebody? What would be the typical ways you'd sin against somebody? Deceiving. Deceiving them or lying to them? Gossiping. Gossiping about them? Outburst of wrath? Yes. You know, some angry outburst where you say really mean things to them and put them down? You know, there's various ways, and there may be even deeper ways that you sin against people when you start thinking about it. So I ought to go to the person I sinned against and confess what I did and apologize, right? Is that easy to do? Why not? You're afraid of what they'll think about. Absolutely. It's really awkward. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's tense. But it's the right thing to do. But then in general, we need to confess our sins to one another and not conceal them. You know, now think about what are reasons why we conceal our transgressions? Shame. Shame, yeah. 
It makes us feel bad to think about them or talk about them. So what's our typical tendency when we do something wrong? Not talk about it. Not talk about it and not think about it. Have you ever done that? Where you try not to even think about it? You know, you do something that really bothers you, and so you try just, you, how do you try not to think about it? What do you do to keep from thinking about something bad you've done wrong? Distract yourself. Yes, you distract yourself by doing something else that takes your mind off of it. So you don't have to deal with it. How many of you have done that? You've tried to distract yourself so you didn't have to think about something you did wrong? Yeah, most of you, or many of you say yes. That's a really common thing. The wrong way to deal with it. Don't try to conceal it. Don't try to put it out of your mind. Don't try to just, you know, ignore it and, and do something else. He, let, me, let me see if I can illustrate for you what happens. You know, let's say, let's say you lie. I'm assuming for most of you, if you told a lie, it would bother your conscience some. Would it bother your conscience if you told a lie? I hope so. Well, what happens if you tell a lie, it bothers your conscience, so you really get busy, you try to do something fun, you know, go watch a movie, or go do something, so you get your mind off of it. Well, what happens with that lie in your mind? Stays there. It's still there. How does it make you feel? You're not thinking about it, you're going to do something else, so how does it make you feel? You can't even enjoy the fun things that you're trying to do. Yeah, it makes it hard to enjoy. You feel like tense, a little stressed, feel a little on edge, but you don't deal with it. Then you tell another lie. And so you do something else to distract you. And, and how does the stress feel? Bigger, heavier, harder to deal with. Then you start telling more lies. You start just ignoring them. Eventually, how do you how do you feel? Well, eventually, yeah. The I first you feel really stressed and like you're gonna go crazy, and you just have to really you know binge on having fun. But eventually, then you can't deal with too much stress. If it really starts bothering you more and more and more then you've got to kill your conscience. Because you can't live with just constant sense of guilt. So you eventually do things just to try to deaden the pain and just to try to, you know, eventually sear your conscience. Do you see the process? That's a process that people go through so much. And so it's really important that we be specific with our confession and we deal with our sins we don't worry about our tender ego we take the shame and the embarrassment and we confess now instead of confessing a lot of times we make excuses for our sins what kind of excuses do we make for our sins everyone else does it everyone else does it or it's not as bad as yeah, I mean, I, I could have done something a lot worse. Yeah, what else? What other excuses do you make? I was raised. 
this way? Yeah, you know, it's how I was raised, just my parents, you know, look how they treated me. What else? Because of the situation, I did this. Yeah, didn't, couldn't really avoid it. Look, it was under the situation, under the circumstance, I had to. What else? Yeah, I wasn't even thinking, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. What else? I'm just human. I'm just human. It's a one-time thing. I just, it was the only time. It was the last time. I'm never going to do it again. How many times have you committed to a sin the last time? <laughs> that is one of Satan's biggest lies. You know, go ahead and do it. It'll be the last time. And, and you string up, you know, a whole string of last times. <laughs> There's a lot of excuses we offer. Rather than doing that, let's confess and forsake our sins. And we'll find com compassion. Confession without forsaking doesn't help you. You know, you've got to confess and quit doing the wrong thing. You know, <laughs> you may not understand all these references, but, but you need to confess and, and forsake. No Achan reserved. No Agag spared. No right hand or right eye favored. Get rid of them. Anything you have to do with them. Totally forsaking and turning to God. Look what happens. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. It's such a blessing to admit what you've done wrong and to turn away from it and get rid of it. Think about sins you're committing right now. Are there some sins you need to be confessing and forsaking? And you think, I don't really have to tell anybody. I'll just, I'll just deal with it myself. How successful have you been in overcoming habitual sins without telling anybody? It's a lot harder, isn't it? It doesn't work very well. Comments. That's a really good verse. Go back and think about that one and remember that one. In verse 14, you know, he says, How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. You know, it's good if we really fear God. It's good if it bothers us when we do wrong. When you get a person who's hardened, how many times are we seeing that in this chapter? The hardened person is just going to do worse stuff. You know, he doesn't listen to his conscience. He doesn't listen to, you know, good people in his life. He just plunges right forward. It's going to be terrible for him. And then verse 15, what is a wicked ruler like? Yeah, some kind of a vicious beast. You know, how horrible a wicked ruler is for the whole country. And in verse 16, a leader who is a great oppressor lacks understanding. But he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. One of the biggest things God says about leaders is they need to be fair to the poor and, and the people in bad situations. That's something we really need. Comments through 16? 17 is a little different. A man who is laden with the guilt of human blood. 
Why would somebody be laden with the guilt of human blood? Because they killed somebody. They killed somebody, exactly. A man who killed somebody will be a fugitive until death. Being a fugitive means what? Outlaw. Running from the law. Yeah, he's on the run. Always running. Always having to stay away from the police. Always having to do whatever. And then look what he says. Let no one support him. Now what's that saying when he says let no one support him? Megan? Not like everyone has to like reject him and if they seem like try to get the police whatever. Yes. What? Yeah. No one helping him out. Yes. Don't interfere with the process of justice. Don't you give him a place to stay to help him to help him run. Don't be a, 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 an enabler. Do you understand the idea of an enabler? That's kind of a psychological term, but it's a good, it's, it's a good concept. The idea of actually helping him do the wrong thing or giving him some opportunity to do the wrong thing. Don't do that. Don't do anything that makes it easy for him to do wrong. I had a friend, for example, I may have used this illustration at some point, but this is probably a good illustration. He, uh, he was not a Christian. His family wasn't a Christian. Like he was 16, 17. He, he drank a lot. He got picked up, I don't know, three or four times for like DUI. And his dad would come down to jail and bail him out. I think his dad had warned him this. He turned 18. He got picked up. He called his dad. His dad said, I'm not coming to bail you <laughs> His dad didn't come and help him. He had to spend like a night or two in jail. He was so angry with his dad. His dad didn't come and get him out. Do you know what? He never drank anymore. <laughs> you know? I mean, sometimes when we bail somebody out too quickly... When we make it too easy for them to escape the consequences of their doing wrong, it actually hurts them. Don't support the guy who's running and not wanting to deal with the consequences of their doing wrong. All you're really doing is hurting them. Does, do you see that? I think that's very, very helpful, very powerful. That's something where parents need to do it with their kids. You know, as you get older especially, if you start doing really bad stuff and your parents say, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to bail you out. I'm not going to solve the problem for you. It may make you really angry with them, but the parent who loves you enough not to make it easy for you to do wrong loves you a lot more than the parent who's always trying to make it easy on their kids. Comments on that? I think it's interesting because if we uh, support the fugitive, uh, then we'll be sharing the blame and the guilt. The Absolutely. Yeah, because we're helping him do the wrong thing or escape from the punishment for doing the wrong thing. We shouldn't do that. I mean, what are they going to do? What would the, what would the, 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 the law, the judge do if you drove the getaway car? Yeah, I mean, they robbed the bank. You didn't have anything to do with it. You just 
drove the car to help them get away. Are you going to be guilty by the law? Absolutely. You didn't have to ever put your fingers on that money. You never went into the bank, but you helped them out. You helped them get away. They're going to charge you too. We understand that. It makes sense. So if you're helping somebody get away from the consequences for their sin, you're guilty too. You might think about that. Don't help somebody cover up. All right, and then verse uh, 18. You know, he who walks blamelessly will be delivered, but he who is crooked will fall all at once. The deceitful man, the wicked man, will fall just like that. I mean, you know who, who uh, sat for the portrait for so many of these proverbs is Haman in the book of Esther. And that exactly what he did, a deceitful man who fell all at once. You know, it looked like he was doing great until one day everything changed and he got executed. <laughs> Eric. These proverbs are really comforting because we have a tendency to look out at our world and say, oh, how unjust it is and how terrible it is and things are just getting worse and worse. But these proverbs show God's created a system where all of that gets taken care of. You're exactly right. In the long run, righteousness prevails and wickedness does not win out. It may sometimes look like it in the short run. Jacob. Also, you could say that Mordecai and Esther sat for this proverb because uh, they were blameless and they got delivered. Yes. Yes. You know, that's, that's very true. Really studying the historical accounts of the Bible I think renews your faith that God's in charge. And you see how God's working behind the scenes, and you see that things, the way they look right now is not the way they're necessarily going to turn out tomorrow. We, we, we need to learn that. Other thoughts? All right, here's some Proverbs on like wealth, 19 to 22. plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty and plenty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. To show partiality is not good, because for a piece of bread a man will transgress. And 22. A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth, and does not know that one will come upon him. You know, most people want wealth. Well, Bible will tell you how this works. You know, verse 19, if you want to have plenty of food, what do you need to do? Work. Work. Work how? If you want to have plenty of food, how should you work? Work hard. Work hard, yeah. I mean, you know, tilling the land. You know, hard, diligent, serious labor. That's the way to get ahead. As opposed to following empty pursuits. Get rich quick. Here's an easy way. Don't have to work. No difficulty. All profit. How does that stuff work? Not very well. Yeah. It doesn't usually happen, does it? You know, when we think like that, it's, uh, you know, usually, it usually doesn't. I mean, you see these... Uh, have you ever heard these advertisements? Usually, like, uh, used to be on late night radio or whatever. You know, work at home, 
just a few hours a week, making thousands, you know, no, no sales involved, you know, easy, easy job. What do you think when you hear those things? That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Any of you ever looked into those? No. No, why not? You're 60. If you were 18, would you look into him? Don't think so. Why not? Yeah, there is no such thing as easy money, no work, no effort, you know, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't work like that. So, you know, if you want to have prosperity, it takes hard work. You got to plow. You got to, you know, it, it, you're going to have to really be diligent. Uh, but when you're just in a hurry to get rich with no effort, it doesn't happen. Comments about that one? Look at verse 20. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. You know, if, if, if you are, you know, just in a hurry to get rich, it will not work. You know, it's, it takes time and effort. It takes investment. You know, that's true with anything. Think about in school. Those of you who are in school, do you know of people in school that cheat? Does that happen in school? Yeah, our school teacher uh, says so. Yeah, it does happen. How, how is that? I mean... Is it a good idea to cheat? It gets you easy grades. You know, get A's without even trying. But then when you have to take the test when you can't cheat, you won't be able to, like, and you'll get, like, a horrible grade because you don't know anything. Yes, eventually... You're going to expect it, be expected to know something. And you're going to be in big trouble. You know, maybe it won't be in the class. Maybe it'll be on the SAT to get into college. You know, maybe it'll be on the job. When you've got this degree that says you know how to, uh, you know, do nursing. And you don't have any idea how to do this stuff. Or you know how to do whatever. You know, you, you know how to deal with electricity. And you uh, fry yourself because you have no clue. You cheated your way through, you know, whatever school they send electricians to. Uh, you know, it's like it never is smart to do that, get an easy whatever by cheating. Because in the long run, it always catches up to you. The only way to make progress is the long, hard way that works. Does that make sense? You see what we're saying? That's just an important lesson, you know, for us to think about. In 20 also, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. You know, do you want to be blessed or do you want to just be in a hurry to get rich? In the long run, the guy in the hurry doesn't do it right, so it doesn't last. And then in 21, to show partiality is not good, because for a piece of bread a man will transgress. He's talking about how taking a bribe is a quick way to a fast buck. 
but it's not going to be helpful in the long run. It's amazing sometimes how little it takes to get somebody to do wrong. You know, you can, you can bribe a judge sometimes with not much. I was hearing this the other day, this is from a long time ago, but it's a good illustration of how bribery works. I thought I might mention this. This is a story that was a true story like 30 or 40 years ago, whatever, um, of, a, of, a, of a guy who uh, was being, uh, you know, on trial for like dealing in some pretty bad drugs. And um, he really didn't want to go to jail. So he talked to his lawyer. He said, I don't want to go to jail. You know, what, what, what does it take for me to stay out of jail? You know, what am I going to have to do? And I, the lawyer may have said something like, well, you may not, may not be able to stay out of jail, but you can get a really light sentence. How, but how much money have you got? What, 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 what could you give? Well, he had $5,000. He said, well, listen, the judge is a really good friend of mine. And I'm going to play golf with him on Monday. I'll bet him $5,000 on the game, and I'll lose. See how that worked? He loses the golf game that they bet $5,000 on, and while he's losing the golf game to the judge who gets the $5,000, he tells him about his client that really needs a light sentence. You see how that is? Bribery isn't always, hey judge, here's money, get my client off the hook. Sometimes it's a little bit more complex than that, but everybody knows the system. You know, bribery is sometimes gifts. You know, we're not bribing, we're just giving gifts, but nobody knows about the gifts. The gifts are never, they're always hidden gifts. But they're just giving me a gift. You know, and, well, I just happened to make that decision in favor of this client, you know, or whatever. Uh, so, uh, and, and sometimes it doesn't take $5,000. It's amazing how little money it takes to, to sell out. Don't do that. Would you, would you be willing to be unfair for, for some money? Would you help somebody cheat or beat the system for some money? That's not a good thing, uh, as he says. All right, comments and questions through verse 22. Logan. Um, I think that verse 19 and verse 20, they kind of relate to spirituality as well. If we, like, we want to grow in our spirituality, we have to work on it. We can't just all of a sudden, hey, I'm really spiritual. We have to work on it and do hard work. Absolutely. There's really everything in life that's worth anything takes diligence and work. So if we want to grow spiritually, same deal. You know, I, you hear about the lady who told the preacher, man, I'd give half my life to know the Bible as well as you do. And he replied, that's probably what it would take. You know, I mean, there's no quick fix to things. You want to learn the Bible, it takes hard work, you got to study. You know, cliff notes don't help, you know, and uh, if you want to grow as a Christian, it's going to take work and effort and diligence over a period of time. So think about those things and just become a hardworking person that everything that's valuable, you really apply yourself. Good point. Other thoughts?
All right, how about 23 to 28? Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Whoever robs his father or his mother and says, that is no transgression, is a companion to a man who destroys. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. Now this is interesting in 23. He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Would you rather have somebody tell you what you want to hear or somebody rebuke you? It's, it's, it's easier to have somebody tell you what you want to hear, isn't it? But in the long run, the man who rebukes will be more respected and more appreciated because it will be more helpful. But now I want you to think about how that works in this verse. He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor. Don't expect to rebuke somebody and immediately they're going to thank you and appreciate you. So don't, let's say you challenge somebody on something they're thinking or, or doing. Don't expect them to just immediately give in and say, yeah, you're right. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an approach to take with this, I think. Um, what if you, you know, you see somebody who's doing something wrong and you go to them and you say, friend, I believe what you did right there was wrong. What would they usually do? Deny it. Deny it and try to justify, justify defend themselves. You ever done that yourself? So what you, should you do? You go to your friend, you go to your brother or sister, and you say, listen, I don't think what you said or did was right. They say, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was okay. You say, well, but here's why I would say that wasn't right. And you show them in the Bible, you explain your reasoning, and they're like, no, no, I think it's... And maybe you explain again, here's why it wasn't. They're like, no, no, it's okay. What should you do at that point? Drop it. Drop it. You know, let what you said sink in. How many times do you give in in the middle of an argument? Do you have a hard time giving in in the middle of an argument? But what happens after the argument when you're thinking later? Are you more likely to start thinking and realizing, you know, I was really wrong about that? Think about, who do you usually argue with most? Siblings. Your siblings or your... Wife. Wife? <laughs> uh, some of you don't argue with your wife, though. Uh, or maybe your parents. But have you ever been in an argument with your parents? <laughs> that was just the first time. Okay. <laughs> have you ever been in an argument with your parents and at the time you kept arguing, but when they stopped arguing and you thought about it overnight or for a few days, 
you finally decided they were right. Has that happened to you before? It's easier to decide somebody else is right when you've got time to think about it. I think that makes this afterward important. That he who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor. So don't just press too hard right at the time. Explain yourself and then let it go and give them a chance to think and reflect and pray. Every once in a while, this will happen to you. Sometimes, you're in some kind of discussion or an argument, and like, it is really one-sided. Like the other person is making just a really stupid argument, and they really left themselves open for you to show how really ridiculous what they're saying is. Be careful about that. You know, don't just jump in and crucify them. Let them think. You know, I mean, sometimes we're cruel in an argument. If they really are just making themselves look stupid, you can probably figure that out in a little bit. You don't have to show them. Let it alone, give them an afterward, and let them come to themselves. Uh, Flattery, you know, is, is not helpful at all in the long run. Oh yeah, you like somebody telling you you're great, but eventually you know it's insincere. You know you're not. Either they're really dumb or they're just lying to you. So in the long run, the guy who gives an honest rebuke and really tries to help will be appreciated more. Comments and questions about that? That's a really thoughtful. Yeah. Is this comparing two different ways of getting someone to do something? Uh, first of all, rebuking them, saying, "Hey, stop doing this. You should do this," or saying, "Well, wow, you know, you're really nice. And would you really mind, you know, doing this differently, or, or, or trying to bolster the ego?" Is that kind of what you see here? Or? Well, I don't know, but I think it's applicable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people do think that the only way to help somebody is just to tell them how great they are, and if you tell them that often enough, they'll change. Is that a very smart approach? It seems to me like telling them how great they are would make them want to stay the same. Right? You know, sometimes people, they always want to make sure they're positive. They always want to be positive. Well, I mean, there's some good things to be said about being positive. I mean, when Jesus wrote to the churches in the book of Revelation, what's the first thing he said about every church he could? Something good. The good things. If he could find anything, he talked about the good things first. That's not a bad idea. You know, to have something positive to say first. If you've got something positive to say, I don't think that's a, a bad thing. But Jesus did not say the rebuke. You know, because how can he help them if he doesn't tell them what they need to change? And so, to just be positive, well, I'll just tell somebody how good they are and maybe they'll change. No, we do need to rebuke. Other thoughts? Well, look at verse 24. He says, He who robs his father or his mother and says it is not a transgression is the companion of a man who destroys. Who would ever do that? Can you imagine... A son or a daughter robbing his parents and saying, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. 
you possibly say that? In their mind, they might view it as being theirs because when their parents die, they couldn't inherit it. Good point, exactly. I think that's precisely right. You know, it kind of really belongs to me anyway. After all, they're my parents. After all, when they die, I'll get it. I think that's exactly the point. So we can justify robbing from them. People do that. You know, people will take like parents that are getting older and maybe not as capable either physically or mentally and just take advantage of them and take things from them and, and all very wrong. You know, it's not right to rob, not even for your parents. You know, in fact, of all the people you would think it'd be outrageous to rob from, it would be your parents. But people do that pretty often with that great mentality. Kevin? Can it not only be uh, physical possessions that you're robbing from, but also like uh, positions? Like, they're, you're a parent, they're, they have the charge and the authority there, and you try, well, I'm going to do this instead, and you're kind of robbing their position as head over you. And even though it's not doing something wrong necessarily, they told you to do something, so you should do it their way of doing it. Well, you certainly ought to obey father and mother, you know, so that, that's certainly true as well. You know, this may even be here, looking beyond just when you're a child, to even grown people robbing their parents. I think that's probably more, more common in the robbing idea, is even when you grow up, than taking advantage of your parents. I was going to say basically what you just said there last as far as this might not be um, necessarily behind their back taking from them but also taking advantage of them uh, and just you know uh, asking for them and just kind of uh, hoarding off of uh, your parents and what they have. Yeah, almost abusing the relationship to get something for yourself. You know, like, well, mom and dad won't say no. I mean, I'll tell you something else. You might think about it this way. You know, what about you grow up and your parents are really nice. And they don't want to say no. So every time you need something, every time, man, you know, I don't have enough money, but I really want this car. You know, I don't have enough money, but I really need this nicer house. I don't have enough money, but I really want this. Hey, mom, hey, dad, you know, can I get this? Can I have some money? I really need this. And maybe they give it to you. Maybe you're not exactly robbing it, because they give it to you. But is that a good way to live? Why not? Because then you don't know how to do it yourself. Exactly. You know, it's so much better when you learn how to take care of yourself instead of still being dependent on mom and dad. I'm not saying it's, there's never a time you can receive help from your parents. But to just always deal with everything by, hey mom, hey dad, can you bail me out? You usually don't learn to grow up and have responsibility. Chris? Oh, it sounded like the Pharisees too, with the dealing with their parents, everything that I had that you could have been helped by. It's already been given to God, so therefore, <laughs> and also it comes to mind, will a man rob God? Uh, like, is it Micah or? Malachi. Malachi talks about the, you know, giving the, work less than what he deserves. So for your parents, maybe the same way. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. 
Instead of robbing our parents, we're actually responsible to care for them as they get older and they are in need. You know, sometimes I think we don't think about it that way. You know, we kind of develop this culture, this mentality, well, I, I just kind of use my parents for my own benefit. I don't have any responsibility toward them. But we do. I mean, isn't it only right? Who took care of you when you were small? Who provided for you? Who gave you your food? Well, what if your parents get in need? Isn't it only right that you would do the same thing back? I mean, you know, it just doesn't make any sense that we receive and then we have no responsibility if they have need. Yes? Do you think it kind of goes back to uh, verse 7 where he's keeping the companion of gluttons and humiliating his father? That um, That's kind of where it starts and then he's even going to his parents to rob them. Yeah. When, when we have that self-indulgent, selfish attitude, then we end up taking advantage of anybody we can just to gratify ourselves. That's a really bad heart. What verse was that in Malachi? Like Malachi 3.10, for example. There's several, several passages in Malachi. Nearly the whole book has something to say about that. And then he says that an arrogant person or you know, perhaps even saying a greedy person, there's a debate about the translation of that, stirs up strife, but you trust in the Lord will prosper. A greedy person who's always trying to satisfy himself and gratify himself will have conflict with others. You know, here's the guy who's always barging to the front of the line. You know, here's the guy who's always standing on somebody else's toes and, and is selfish and inconsiderate. He always wants things for himself. A selfish person always has strife. He's always in a fight with somebody. Because, guess what? Other people are selfish too. And so, you know, selfish people end up conflicting with each other all the time. Because they're always trying to get for themselves. And they don't want the other person to have it. So that, that you, if you see somebody who's always fighting, they're always conflict, that might be the reason. Maybe. Also, they never have enough. They're always jealous of other people who have something they want or yes it's really selfishness is a really miserable life it doesn't seem like it would be but it is and then look at verse 26 if you trust in your own heart you're a fool you know you think that the way you believe and the way you see things is always right how foolish, much better to walk wisely, that is looking to the Lord for direction and following what he says, instead of just following what you think and feel. Lots of applications to that. You know, how many times do we do what we feel like doing, instead of doing what we know from the Lord would be the better thing to do? And then look at verse 27. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Would you think that being generous would actually lead you to more prosperity? How can you give money away and get more? But that's because the Lord's behind everything. You know, we forget that this is not just a strictly accounting thing when it comes to our life in this world, since God's the one in charge, you know, the more generous you are, the more you'll prosper. 
And it really undercuts the primary fear behind not giving. You know, somebody say, well, I sure would like to give to somebody, but I'm afraid I might need it. Well, I mean, maybe we ought to say, well, I'm afraid not to give to somebody because I might need some help. <laughs> you know, the Lord blesses those who are generous. And uh, so stingy people often end up having less. And then again in verse 28, what he said already in some of the other passages like verse 12 is, you know, when wicked people rise, men hide themselves. When they perish, the righteous increase. It's so bad when wicked people are in charge. It's just, you don't want that, ever. It's always a bad situation. I come in some questions on those things. All right, let's take a break for a few minutes and then we'll work on chapter 29.